right, bonus episode. Today, we're heading to Indianapolis, Indiana to see how one manufacturing conference is connecting startups, investors, and corporations. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? This week, we're diving into Generator's OnRamp Manufacturing Conference. Now, for our frequent listeners, you know that Manufacturing Happy Hour is regularly traveling to conferences for episodes where we get to interview a ton of manufacturing leaders in a concentrated period of time. This is almost always done as a way to explore a trend or topic that's central to the manufacturing industry or to explore what the tech and manufacturing scene is like in that area. Today's episode does both. The OnRamp Conference is an annual event that brings together startups, investors, and corporations. And this year, in October 2022, we headed to Indianapolis, where we sat down for eight interviews with individuals that are running startups, managing accelerators and investment funds, as well as leading state initiatives to help manufacturing thrive in Indiana. Now, OnRamp is an event that I've been familiar with for maybe close to five years. You know, at the end of the day, it's a connection event, and I've always wanted to check it out. Part of the reason being is that the group that puts it on, Generator, has been involved in this podcast practically from day one. That's Generator spelled with an eight rather than an A, and some of the earliest episodes featured companies that went through Generator's accelerator programs. They were also just on episode 107 a few months back, so long story short, it's a cool organization that's become ingrained in the fabric of Manufacturing Happy Hour. Anyway, I was already heading to this event this year to deliver a TEDx-style keynote, so it was a perfect chance to add in some interviews. Here's what you can expect from today's episode. I mentioned that there were eight interviews, and this will be the general flow. First, we're going to hear from Generator and the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. This will give us some better baseline as to what the event was all about and what sets Indiana apart as a manufacturing state. Second, we're going to hear from three of the startups at the event before hearing from some of the companies that are investing in the next generation of tech and manufacturing companies. For an event that was meant to bring together startups, corporations, and investors, I think this story arc should give you a taste as to what it was like and, honestly, why you might want to check it out in the future. As with any of our episodes, you can always learn more and connect with our guests at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash onramp2022. That'll take you straight to the show notes page for this one. Again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash onramp2022. And with that, it's time for our first interviews. These are going to set the stage. Our first guest is Maggie Brickerman, partner at Generator. She's going to give us a bit more background on the OnRamp conference, their mission, how it's evolved, what makes it unique, and more. Let's head to Indiana and jump in. All right, Maggie, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. And you came prepared, as I can see that, beer in hand, which is the way we, we started this and like to do it. And in, in Manufacturing Happy Hour fashion, we are having this conversation, literally having a beer with one another. So I'd love for you to describe Generator. Because when I look at what it is, it says it's a turnkey platform for the creative economy. What does that mean? <laughs> so Generator is a venture fund and a startup accelerator that operates in over 40 cities across the country. 
We call ourselves a turnkey platform because we can come to any city and partner with that community to set up programming to help invest in their best and brightest in whatever way that they need. And, and I'm curious about this specific event because we're here in Indiana. We're here in the Gainbridge Fieldhouse where the Indiana Pacers play. This is not the typical spot where I do these type of interviews. Actually, I've done interviews like this. I've been to an event at Lambeau Field before. That's the closest thing. But this is not your typical venue for an event like this. So, you know, how did this event come to be? Give us the origin story of the on-ramp conference. We have done an on-ramp conference at Lambeau Field. Oh, no way. And Soldier Field, which we call Lambeau South. <laughs> yes, um, yes. You're from Wisconsin. I am from right. Wisconsin, yeah, yes. And so I would say go Bucks, but I don't want to get kicked out of this Sure, <laughs> sure. They're the one, as a non-Wisconsin native, they're the one Wisconsin team I have adopted. <laughs> um, they're easy to adopt because they won a national championship. Yes. Um, so the on-ramp conference series started in 2013, and it was originally a regional conference. So the sort of complaint that we had about all the conferences that were available for startup companies to attend is that they were very expensive and the ROI was really unclear. So you would pay a lot of money and you kind of networked and squinted at name tags and you would try to find the right person to get a deal done and you never knew what was going to happen. So we said, what if we got a bunch of corporations in Wisconsin together who commit to either buying from, investing in, or buying coffee for one of the startups. We will curate startups to meet with them. They'll get to pick who they want to meet with. And then we will facilitate sort of speed networking 20-minute meetings for the explicit purpose of getting deals done. Mm -hmm. And because we had so many people who attended those early conferences, we needed a venue where there were a lot of little private meeting rooms. Yeah. And stadiums, because they have the luxury box suites, were perfect. So yeah. they're, they're not being used during the day. They're a really cool venue. And then everyone gets a little small meeting room, and it's very efficient to meet all of your potential buyers. It's, a, it's an interesting way to do it, right? And it wouldn't be the first reason I'd think why someone would do it at, a, <laughs> at, a, at an arena, but it makes perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. So having those little meeting rooms there, cool different way to do a conference. I'm sure some people listening to this are thinking, oh, maybe I'll do that for my conference next Absolutely. Time. And it's really fun <laughs> to use the Jumbotron. Yes. A yes. great way to get on the Jumbotron. I am excited to jump on stage <laughs> and speak in front of a Jumbotron tomorrow. I don't know <laughs> if I'll ever be able to do that again, but, you know, check that off the bucket list at least <laughs> once in life. Um, so I, I do have a question. Um, what, you know, when, when I look at the people that are speaking at these events, I see a lot of, at least from what I've seen so far, seed and pre-seed individuals. And that's a little different from when I've done events like this because I, I love these, as you described, deal-making events, right? You're bringing together big companies, startups, educators, all of these people in one spot. This seems to be focused on folks that are really early stage. Is that the, is, am I getting the right impression or is there more to it? So tonight we are showcasing companies that participated in our G-Beta accelerators in Indiana. So there's three cohorts, 5G, Industry 4.0, and Sustainability and Energy. Mm -hmm. They are pre-seed and seed stage. Um, and that is primarily who we work with and who Generator invests in. Tomorrow, there will be a broader spectrum of companies. So the signature event is Startup Track. And um, that's, as I described, when corporations choose the startups they want to meet with, that's open to any startup. They do not have to be a Generator alumni company. Mm -hmm. And those do range a bit more in stage. And another thing I've found unique about this is when I think of startups in the manufacturing space, I think of robotics and, and automation technology. That seems to be, maybe it's just the industry I came up with being a Rockwell Automation alumni, but that's those those are the type of companies that I typically see at events like this, but this feels a bit more broad. And you were just saying 5G, sustainability. So can you tell us a bit more about how this is 
let's say, manufacturing beyond just the factory floor, per se? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a good question, and it's something that we've considered. Do we broaden this conference explicitly to hard tech? Mm. Um, So the conference is sponsored by IEDC, um, Mm -hmm. which is the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, and they do a really good job of focusing our accelerators on key industries across the state. Mm. And so this conference started as manufacturing, but then in discussing with their corporate partners across the state, it really has brought in. So there's a lot of interest in energy, batteries, um, and all of the things that are sort of adjacent, as you said, to directly on the factory floor. And, and I'm curious about Indiana as well, because I know they're a big part of this, one, one of the sponsors. What, what is your impression of Indiana as a manufacturing state right now? I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. <laughs> well, 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 even just yes. peripheral, I think yes. it would be great because we, we are yeah? going to be talking to the oh, Indiana good. Academic yes. to good, Development good, good. Cor- Group. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get the, the boots on the ground answer. But I would love your, let's say, peripheral um, experience Absolutely. with it so far. So what I would say about um, the state and IEDC in particular, and I know you're going to talk to Dave Roberts, is they are perhaps better than any other state we work with really good at leveraging their convening power. Mm. So they put in the money to fund these programs, but not to fully fund them. And so other people come to the table. So the manufacturing, they have um, what's called the CICP, which is a series of industry-focused organizations across the state. Uh, So Connexus is the manufacturing um, arm, and they've been really involved in setting the stage for those G-beta programs. So I think what I would say is, as a state, they are really forward-looking and really focused on innovation. This is in the heart of um, manufacturing country, in in the country. Mm -hmm. And I think they are very aware that um, they need to be thinking about what the next generation looks like if they're going to continue to compete. Yeah. You know, we've covered a lot of ground in this quick conversation. Is there anything you wish I would have asked you? in this discussion that I haven't yet? Um, I think what beer we would be drinking if we weren't here. Ooh, that, <laughs> yeah, what beer would we be drinking if we weren't here right now? So I live in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and we have a great brewery called Untitled Art. I've had their stuff. It's amazing. And I know this is going to be controversial, but I had, um, I did a little bit of like a dry January, mm. and there juicy IPA that's non-alcoholic is one of my favorite IPAs. Really? Yes. I I didn't do dry January this year, but I started mixing in non-alcoholic beers into my rotation. Yes. That's one of the things that comes with the territory of being the manufacturing happy hour guy. Everyone wants to drink with you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I need something so that I don't have some, to do that all the time. Some NA options, yes. <laughs> so. um, you absolutely should try it. They... Um, they're, it's so good, and I continue to drink it, even though I tried all the NA beers, and yeah. they're, the, they're the only good ones. That is that is great intel, and and for the record out there, for anyone listening, you know they have a lot of other great beers as well. There, I've gotten them in uh, Milwaukee quite frequently. They have some very creative ones. They I've do. had some very stout or pastry stout style yeah. type beers. So and they have beautiful labels, and they do ship. So yeah. if you're not in Wisconsin, you can order it on their website. All right. Untitled Art. Well, we're going to be talking about Indiana. We're going to be talking startups here. But we appreciate you kicking us off. And next time we do this conversation, we'll have to do it over some beverages at Untitled Art. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Cheers. All right. I can confirm that it was, in fact, cool to speak in front of the Jumbotron. You know, I mentioned it before, but I really do like their extended focus on manufacturing challenges, looking ahead to 5G, while putting more focus on sustainability. 
But I can also confirm that since this interview, I have added Untitled Arts Non-Alcoholic Juicy IPA to my beer rotation, and it is in fact awesome. I literally have some in my fridge right now, but shame on us, though, for not name-dropping an Indiana-based brewery. We're about to fix that in this next interview. Maggie made mention of the IEDC, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, and they are up next and an absolutely essential part of our on-ramp story. If you're like me, you're going to learn a few things about Indiana manufacturing in this next segment. Let's hear from Dave Roberts, the Chief Innovation Officer for the IEDC. Dave, cheers. Cheers. How are we doing? Great. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Happy to be here. Mm drinking a fine indiana beer from sun yeah. king brewing right now a part of indiana manufacturing absolutely some of the fun stuff just yeah. a couple blocks away actually and uh you are part of the indiana economic development corporation specifically you're the chief innovation officer so yeah. the first question has to be what does a chief innovation officer do at the economic development yeah, corporation um, it's a thrilling uh day every day uh, answering a lot of emails <laughs> and sitting in a lot of meetings yeah but uh no, it, it's honestly, um, other than working for my dad when I was young, one of the best jobs I've ever had, the best job I've ever had, um, really thinking about where is Indiana going, where are strategic sectors going, and uh, how can we influence those sectors um, for growth in Indiana. And so we look out, we, we work with um, folks in academia, we work with folks in um, in different, uh, what I would call keystone uh, enterprises in the state, and we get to know their tech roadmap and mm-hmm. we start to understand where there's lots of opportunity, lots of disruption and um, really then try and design programs, policies around how to promote that here in Indiana. And you and I were, were laughing before the interview that Indiana is like the heartland of the heartland, right? Yeah. The heart of the heartland, right in the middle. You know, people think of this part of the country as a manufacturing part of the country. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to get your take on what manufacturing is, is like today and we'll talk about what it might look like in the future as well here in Indiana. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the big thing is manufacturing today doesn't look like it did 50, 60 years ago. So Mm -hmm. maybe the picture of a dirty factory and, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, dangerous work conditions, that's not the case anymore. Factories tend to be very very clean, very safe environments. Um, But Indiana still makes 27% of the nation's steel, the highest uh, steel producer in the nation. Um, Did not we know have that. A highly industrialized past, uh, especially yeah. in northern Indiana, but um, more and more in southern Indiana as well. Um, northern Indiana, as you come out of Chicago and head east, has a lot of um, that heavy equipment, heavy manufacturing. Um, a lot of, like I said, there's an oil refinery, steel, um, and but that's gotten safer and safer and cleaner over the years and. Um, when we think about what manufacturing is going to look like in the future, I'm really excited about that part of Indiana because um, hydrogen energy is one of the cleanest sources of energy, um, both for the manufacturing inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. And we have an awesome opportunity in Northwest Indiana to take half of the carbon footprint out of our manufacturing processes in about six, seven years before the end of the decade. Wow. Um, so we're very excited about that. But and, w- and what makes that unique here versus other yeah. spots where you have that opportunity? Yeah, so there's an old refinery uh, that dates back, has a rich innovation history. Um, it used to be Standard Oil back in the late 1800s. Today it's a BP facility in Whiting, Indiana. And it's a very intensive refining process, uh, energy-intensive process. And so there's a lot of hydrogen that's created. And uh, BP is working with a couple of other strategic partners to figure out how to capture that hydrogen 
and push it back into their own process, mm. as well as potentially selling that to the steel mills, which are right across the street. There's a lot of imperative for green steel today uh, to supply the auto manufacturers um, in Michigan. And so there's a really neat opportunity set there, um, like I said, for a dramatic reduction in carbon footprint associated with manufacturing. But in addition to that, you know, manufacturing today uh, is cleaner. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, we're looking at environments that are clean room or dry room uh, kind of environments. I, I think about uh, semiconductors. Uh, we just announced a, a relationship with a Minnesota uh, yeah. semiconductor manufacturer called uh, Skywater. They're going to be coming um, into Lafayette, Indiana. Um, a few months ago, we announced a Samsung battery facility mm-hmm. that's coming into Kokomo. And so that's the kind of exciting, clean or dry room kind of environments that are really producing really the, um, the products of the future. And you had another big win with Eli Lilly recently yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Eli Lilly is a great example of uh, a company that has committed so much to the state and the city of Indianapolis over its history. Mm -hmm. And uh, just in May, they announced that they're going to do two manufacturing facilities in a town called Lebanon, um, which is in between basically the 50 yard line between Indianapolis and Purdue University. Okay. So great source of talent, um, great opportunity to develop land there. Um, and look at the uh, you know life sciences manufacturing future um, that they plan for their company. So we've been talking about the big guys so far. Let's right. talk about the little guys yeah. as well. I shouldn't say the little guys, but the up and comers, yeah. right? Um, one one statement you made to me was that hey, hard tech startups are hard. Go yeah. into that a bit more. I want to hear about that first. Yeah. So you know, first of all, just defining hard tech, we we view that as anything that has a product associated with the software. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to be divorced of software going forward. Everything that comes out, more or less, is smart in some way. Um, but what makes hard tech hard is that investors um, don't necessarily like to have that longer lead time, the longer sales cycles. Uh, longer product development. Um, you got really used to a, an asset light software startup, um, you know, SaaS models and so on. Um, and it's easier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so hard tech is hard, not just because you have a physical object, because there are challenges that aren't similar to the SaaS environment. But hard tech, in our opinion, is really where the future lies, because enabling all of that physical product that we see um, all around us is, is going to represent a ton of opportunity. Um, so for us, what we do is uh, at the IEDC, we look at the statistics. 1.5 million um, citizens of Indiana work in a large company out of about 2.7 total workforce. But 74, 74% of our net new jobs every year are by companies less than five years old. So oh. we want to stimulate that young company environment. We're really looking at ways like OnRam yeah. uh, to match up these young companies with established players like Cummins and others, um, you know, to, to really knit them into the community. Um, I think that that's part of the secret sauce here in Indiana yeah. is that we are highly connected. Um, mm. and, and that really helps those young companies grow faster. So highly connected is one thing. Anything else unique you notice about the startup scene here that you're like, you know what, Indiana does this really, really well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the connectedness, the community is absolutely one of them. Secondly, um, we give you a much longer runway to, to execute here. So, um, and this is true of a lot of places in the Midwest, but especially in a state like Indiana, you have extremely stable and predictable government which on a lot of minds is not, is not the first thing uh, startups will think about. 
But allowing you to have an environment that's very predictable is great for your investors. They mm -hmm. love to see that. Um, we're also leaning in in terms of the tools that we can use, um, whether that's dilutive or non-dilutive ways that we can support those young companies. So we have a, an audience here at Manufacturing Happy Hour, primarily North American based, but you know across the world as well. What's a lesson you think that other, let's say, ecosystems, states, countries, etc., could could learn from Indiana? As a, a final question. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I mean, I would actually flip it and say that we want to learn a lot from others. Ooh. So we've looked a lot at the um, startup communities in Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. um, in London, and uh, Singapore, around the world. We've tried to learn a lot from them. And and then I guess in, in return, what I think that folks can learn from us is just that it does take um, a concerted effort. Folks that are willing to come together, I, I'll hit the theme of community again. Mm -hmm. That's going to really make your runway longer. It's going to make your company stronger. You're going to survive a lot longer and be able to raise that next round at a higher valuation, which is really music you know, to the ears of a founder. Well, I love that answer. Learn from others, you know, have, learn things they can learn from you as well. Dave, it's been a pleasure having you here on Manufacturing awesome. Happy Hour. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so a quick summary of the things I picked up from this conversation. One, Indiana is the biggest steel producer in the U.S. They have an opportunity to take half the carbon footprint out of their manufacturing processes by 2030, and they're getting semiconductor manufacturing in multiple locations. Plus, the trend that the majority of new jobs in Indiana each year are with companies that are less than five years old. Awesome Indiana insights from Dave, and if you're a regular listener of this show, you know we love exploring what characterizes these regional tech scenes. By the way, for all the beer drinkers listening to this, I should say that all the breweries we've mentioned in this episode, along with all the guests that we've interviewed, you can find links to connect with those people or check out those breweries over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash onramp2022. Anyway, speaking of younger organizations, our next three interviews are with smaller companies that are getting off the ground. I spoke with all three of these groups right after they wrapped up their pitch competition that evening at OnRamp. And up first is Razi Nalim, the founder of Aerodyne Combustion and an associate dean and professor at IUPUI, which is Indiana University and Purdue University in Indianapolis. You'll hear how he balances both of these roles in this next interview. An anodyne combustion. All right. Aerodyne. Aerodyne. Did I say anodyne? Anodyne's the name of a coffee shop down the street. I know that from well, me. yes. <laughs> Aerodyne combustion. Well, Razi, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to ask you. So, we are literally at a happy hour right now. So, if someone were to ask you at a happy hour, you know, what does aerodyne combustion do? How do you answer that as if you're having drinks with someone? Well, aerodyne air combustion was formed to really solve a big problem in mm -hmm. um, energy use, which is used in manufacturing, which is used um, in, in transportation and in uh, homes and, and electricity generation and so on. A lot of which comes from burning uh, fuel in something called a combustion turbine, which is the same as a jet engine. Yeah. Uh, but you can also use it on the ground for generating electricity or for in uh, manufacturing or in industry applications and so on. And uh, we have technology that we developed at the university, in, and I'm still at my university doing my yeah. day job, uh, and trying to commercialize this research that we did at the university in collaboration with a major aerospace engine manufacturer. Uh, and we are now trying to find ways of getting it uh, to many, many different customers 
uh, on the ground first and then eventually in airplanes. Yeah, and, and your technology, I'm looking at my notes, it was originally developed for NASA, right? That's right. Uh, tell us about that, right? There's got to be a good story behind that. So I worked at NASA before I came to the university, and NASA was trying to solve the problem of carbon dioxide emissions yeah. uh, from airplanes and the cost of fuel uh, that, you know, it's a big part of operating airlines, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, NASA is a National Aeronautics and Space Administration, so don't forget the aeronautics part of it, <laughs> which is where aircraft engines come in. And uh, so I um, uh, worked there on uh, the idea of making uh, the internal process of burning fuel in what we call a combustor inside of the jet engine, uh, making that much more efficient and actually also producing more power for the same amount of fuel. So effectively, it means that you can make your jet engine lighter as well, which makes the airplane generally safer uh, uh, because of a lower weight engine. Um, that's the goal. That was why we started there. And then, uh, you know, we, we realized that uh, there's a lot of other users on the ground as well that can benefit from this technology. Well, that's what I want to ask about as well, because you've, I, I, I should say, the, the way it's evolved is you serve natural gas pipelines with your technology now, yes. correct? Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that, like what, how so, that came to be? Um, so, so natural gas pipelines right now um, have a shortage of capacity because uh, the U.S., uh, you know, we're fortunate to have a lot of shale gas that's been produced uh, in recent years. So there's a tremendous opportunity to produce more shale gas. Um, but uh, the pipeline pumping capacity is limited partly because of air pollution regulations mm -hmm. uh, that uh, limit the amount of uh, the capacity of these compressor stations around the country. And our technology has the ability to um, provide an increase in power in mm -hmm. capacity, essentially, that means, uh, for different kinds of engines that the pipeline industry uses. And uh, we are trying to um, use that opportunity to um, really validate and, and prove our technology on the ground in the real world uh, before we go to the airplane uh, manufacturers again, mm -hmm. um, because the risk levels are much higher, obviously, in the airplane than on the ground. Sure. And um, so... Uh, we have an opportunity to provide a benefit to the pipeline compressor uh, businesses um, with this, with similar technology. So focused, uh, so started at NASA, focused right. on pipelines. Now it's on, it, you have your eyes set for the airlines as well. Uh, yeah. So so the airlines, uh, you know, buy airplanes, right? Yeah. From Boeing and Airbus and so uh -huh. on. Uh, but they also buy the engines from companies like Rolls-Royce, General Electric, mm -hmm. um, and, and Pratt and & Whitney, and, and so on. So uh, our technology would be something that the engine manufacturers have yeah. to uh, advertise to the airlines because the airlines are the ones that are going to save fuel and reduce carbon dioxide emissions. They want to, they're interested in that. But, but they trust the technology that the engine manufacturers provide that goes with the airplane. So... Sure. So there, there's, there's a middleman th there. Th th yeah. yeah, there's a middleman, <laughs> and, and so that's who we have to work with to well, get to the airlines. 
Well, I've, I've got a, I'm going to change gears here because I've got another question. You've talked about your day job already as a professor. Mm-hmm. How do you balance being part of a startup and being a professor? You're actually not the first person I've ever talked to that's balancing both as well. That's I feel like that's becoming more of a thing in academia. Is that <laughs> am I am I right there? Well, um, so um, I'm someone that worked in industry uh, and worked at NASA, as I said before. Yeah. I went, went to academia, so one of my goals in academia is to try to bring that experience to the classroom as well. So Mm -hmm. I try to get my students excited about not only the science and the fundamentals that I teach. So uh, tomorrow evening I'll be teaching my graduate level class in combustion, Mm. which I've been doing here for a long time. Uh, But the students are very interested in how can we take what we learn and apply it in the real world, right? So I need to set an example of that. Sure. You know, uh, so I try always with my research to be always taking what I'm doing uh, in my lab and, and t- getting it to the real world and the benefits to society as quickly as possible, yeah. and not just leave it to you know, some, somebody in the future because uh, the needs are urgent right now. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of motivation, but of course it's a challenge to be able to balance you know, uh, work and life and, and, and all of this at the same time. Are, are you seeing more of the, because you were in industry first and then you went to academia. Are you right. seeing more people make that transition? I feel like that would be tremendously valuable in this day and age. Yes, I, I think, um, you know, I've known a lot of people that, that have done that. Yeah. Um, I, I wish there was uh, more of that opportunity. Uh, part of that is limited by how um, academia sort of values that. And I think that has changed. Mm. There was a time when academia was just, too academic, sure. You know, and sure. Uh, I think uh, I think we all realizing in academia that our students benefit tremendously when they have professors in the classroom that can talk about uh, the work that they've done as professionals. Um, just like um, you, you know, in many fields, that's natural. Um, um, you know, physicians teaching medical students usually are also practicing medicine at the same time. And I think that should be true in engineering and in other fields as well, as much as we can, especially if you're uh, teaching to develop professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and remind me, you're a professor here in Indiana. That's correct. correct? Yeah. What's, a, I, I guess, a final question. What's your impression of the state of manufacturing in the state of Indiana as well? I feel like that's a big theme here at this event. Right, I'd love to get your right. take on well, that. Well, I'm very fortunate to be in Indiana, which is really one of the top manufacturing states uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly has had, you know, changes over the years as certain, you know, certain uh, technologies have changed. The automotive industry was pretty large in Indiana. It's still pretty large. Uh, but obviously has changed a great deal. I also have colleagues that work in autonomous vehicles and electrification of vehicles. And um, in my role as associate dean, I work with them to also bring those technologies to Indiana manufacturers and and startups that would like to take those technologies and become world leaders and make Indiana uh, world-class manufacturing, all of those areas as well. So I saw you presenting earlier when I came in here, and you present to students. You've been in industry before. What's it like presenting to a group where there's a bunch of investors out there as well? So this is new for me. Okay. I have not done an investor pitch before. Yeah. And I'm just like a freshman, you know, learning how to <laughs> do something new right now. Uh, it's very interesting. I'm learning a lot because I think the way you have to communicate uh, to an investor and the way you have to talk about the return on investment that an investor is going to be looking for is very different from talking about the technology itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
it's it's tremendous that there is an opportunity here in Indiana, right in my backyard, so to speak. Yeah. In the area of energy and sustainability, that generator is running here as a G beta program. Uh, it's not doing that in many places around the country. So I'm tremendously lucky that it's happening right here in Indianapolis. You just compared it to being a freshman again, which I, I like what gives you that ability to continue to do new things, right? I could see someone being very complacent in industry, but you're like, no, I'm going to be a professor. No, I'm going to do a startup. What is that? What is it about you that gives you that um, drive for c- new experiences, continuous learning? This is the last that's, question I'm going to th- ask. Th- that's, that's, a tr- that's, a tr- that's an absolutely wonderful question, and that's something that I think the, the world uh, today is changing a lot faster than, mm-hmm. let's say, 100 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So all of us have to be lifelong learners, um, and we try to teach our students that, that you know, no matter how old you are, um, you know, as, as, as long as you're healthy and, and, and you're curious, um, you know, the, you'll always have opportunities to learn. I was born um, in a small island in the Indian Ocean, halfway across the world. Um, and if I wasn't curious, if I wasn't exploratory, I wouldn't have come, you know, not only to this country, but actually sure. have lived in three countries in my life. Wow. And, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's fun. That's always uh, uh, what you want to have in life is that opportunity to learn. Amazing way to wrap our conversation. Razi, it's been excellent having you here on the show. Thank you very much. Great little lesson there at the end on continuous learning. And quite frankly, an industry leader turned professor turned founder is the perfect person to hear that from. Apur Kiran is up next. It's probably no coincidence that this next startup also evolved out of a university and has a pretty cool story as to how the company got off the ground. First, though, let's hear how he's gamifying manufacturing training to fill the skills gap, and then we'll hear how his company, called Mentor, has evolved. Apur, it's great to have you here. we got to start with the cheers. Cheers. Welcome to Manufacturing Hat. Oh, prost, yes. I'm excited to talk about Mentor as I believe it's pronounced, spelled like mentor, but with an E at the end. And your slogan, your motto is train and retain. Tell us what that means. Right now in manufacturing and warehouses, retention is a huge problem. A lot more skilled workers are uh, leaving the industry, retiring, compared to the millennials and Gen X joining the mm-hmm. job. Um, so... All, all of the companies are struggling in terms of, you know, training and retention. That's where our solution comes in picture. We have gamified the experience of uh, training on factory floor, which allows workers to enjoy their work more than uh, the current methods. Yeah. And it has been very successful. So what we noticed is that training is not just faster, but workers retain longer uh, uh, on the job. That's why we started calling it Train to Retain. I love it. And the audience of Manufacturing Happy, I think the manufacturing industry in general is well aware we have a workforce issue. People are retiring. We don't have enough people coming in. I'd love to hear, tell me a bit more how you gamified it, right? That's something that I think is very unique, especially attractive to the next generation. I'd love to hear how Mentor does that. The idea of gamification comes from, you know, computer games that we usually play Mm -hmm. Um, even in day-to-day activities if we enjoy something if there is a reward if there is any kind of recognition we like to do those things Mm -hmm. and that's what we have done with 
the training programs in the manufacturing as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of time workers who are coming to the factory, they find these jobs mundane. They feel as if they don't get recognition. They mm -hmm. don't feel as if they are rewarded for their work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they feel disposable. That's why um, when we started including these gamification ideas from computer games, workers have started liking them. The other thing is, you know, when we talk about factory floor work, even if they are building high-tech product, their job is not necessarily high-tech. So, you know, once you give them a piece of technology, they feel mm -hmm. more empowered, they enjoy their work more. So that, that's how we are, we are changing the learning training experience on factory floor. Yeah, that's an, an, I like the, you made me think about this in a new way, right? It makes whatever the job is a little bit more high tech. So I want to ask a bit about being a startup as well. And I heard, I heard you talking on stage. You know, you have five industry verticals you're focused on. Maybe I'll start with that question. You know, did you have certain areas you were expecting to go into? Were, are any of these verticals ones you're like, hey, I have a feeling we're going to be strong here? And then were other ones of these a surprise, let's say? Yeah. Initially, funny enough, we started in um, uh, biomedical device mm. uh, company idea. So idea was to prevent culpa tunnel for um, new moms, senior, who struggle with hand injuries a lot. Not necessarily related to work, but also because of, you know, um, different health reasons. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, during customer discovery process and uh, uh, our business uh, planning, we realized that there was another market which was untapped, and that was manufacturing. In manufacturing, the same piece of technology could be pivoted and used in a more continuous manner. So that's why we ended up uh, being in manufacturing sector. At first, when we started, we were hoping to focus only on those jobs which are labor-intensive, Okay. jobs which are in food processing companies or warehouses. Um, but what we noticed and what we found through customer discovery that pain point is same in every industry. Mm. In fact, it is independent of geography as well. So it doesn't matter where you, whether you are in Midwest or South or West Coast or outside USA, all the companies are struggling with this problem of you know training qualified workers, upskilling them, and we thought, oh, so we have a much broader, bigger business. And since then, we have been growing consistently into different verticals. And, and Mentor, you told me you've been a company for two and a half years now, correct? Yeah. And I guess, first of all, the origin of the word mentor, I, sh I probably should have covered this at the start, but it's the Italian word for mentor, correct? Yes. Uh, I, one thing I want to ask, and this is a, a bit of a 180 from what we were just talking about with the origin of the word, was what was it like getting your first customer as a young company, right? Like, that's that's one of the things that I just think is an interesting story for anyone out there, whether they're with a big organization, starting a company of their own. would love to hear what your experience was doing that. So for us, you know, um, the getting first customer was very interesting. Mm-hmm. We were lucky that they also turned out to be our investor. <laughs> so that Funny was like, that you know, win-win. <laughs> we got two wins yeah. <laughs> in one go. I always say that, you know, when you are a student at a school, people are more willing to talk to you because you're not trying to sell anything. You're trying to learn. So that's what we were doing. We were uh, at Cornell University. Mm -hmm. I was doing my PhD. During PhD, I had this idea of a biomedical device that could prevent carpal tunnel injuries. 
So Cornell had an entrepreneurship program. We call it eLab, Entrepreneurship Lab, okay. where they give you $25,000 of uh, uh, funding and support, and they uh, help you do customer discovery. They teach you how to build a business, create IP, etc. So I was in eLab. Yeah. Um, and as a part of you know that program, they taught me uh, to go out and do customer discovery. And we tried everything. I was talking to doctors. I was talking to you know um, uh, managers at Cornell University. And then one day I um, went to uh, Tyson Foods customer uh, contact us page. Mm-hmm. The same place where people go and complain about their chicken or they want to <laughs> <laughs> they want to give feedback to the company. And I wrote a message saying that hey, we have a solution which can potentially prevent carpal tunnel injuries among our uh, among your workers because the data showed they had a lot of such injuries and uh, i was very surprised in two days i got a reply from very senior up executive saying he was interested in learning about our system and bam we got our first customer there wow <laughs> uh, uh, Fast forward one year, they also decided to make an investment in our company. So it was a two yeah. win uh, in one go. We got our investor as well as our customer there. So, so one last question then. Was it emotional to go from what you thought your idea was originally going to be to what it's become today, right? A solution for Carpal Tunnel to now a workforce enablement platform, train and retain, right? Um, was that a hard decision or was, was it very business-minded? Was it like, you know what, this makes sense to go this direction? It was mostly business-driven. Yeah. It was also based on, you know, a few uh, judgments. For example, do I really want to solve carpal tunnel once it has occurred or I want to uh, actively prevent it? Mm. So I didn't want to be reactive. I thought, why not to eliminate it at the source itself? Yeah. And when I was trying to solve repetitive motion injuries among the workers, I realized, well, there is a bigger fish to fry. Why should we worry just about the injuries? You can actually teach a lot of nuances of manufacturing to workers. And that's how our platform, you know, became broader. Also, you know, during two and a half years of journey, we got more and more customers. I learned more about our uh, business. I learned about customers. I learned about their pain points. And that's how we gravitated towards this vision. Wow. You know, cut it off at the source rather than react to the problem down the line. I love that. Great stories, great advice for uh, for the audience out there. Apoor, I'm looking forward to seeing how Mentor continues to grow. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank Prost. you so much, Chris. Enjoy talking to you. All right. Pretty cool story as to how they locked down Tyson as a customer. Now, we have one more startup story ahead of us before we chat with folks from the investment community. Our next guests are both from Scout Autonomy. Amir Beg, CTO, and Batuhan Ulusan, COO, join us to share how Scout Autonomy grew out of Purdue University while Amir was still an undergrad. Amir, Batuhan, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. First question. So we're hanging out here at a literal happy hour here at the on-ramp manufacturing conference. When someone asks you, hey, what does Scout Autonomy do when you're at an event like this? What's your pitch? How do you describe it to someone simply? Very simply, autonomous information connection. We connect your information that you have in your, your enterprise very easily, very simply, just like that. 
And and I, I'm interested to explore your, let's say, startup story a little bit because, Amir, you literally started this while you were at Purdue University as a student, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Can you tell me a little bit about how it came to be? Well, it started in about, uh, let's say, December 2019, just about the turn of the year. Uh, my friend Brian and I, we had... We always have these ideas like, oh, you know, let's do this, let's do that. But nothing ever comes to fruition. So I sent him a message and I said, hey, let's actually do something and, you know, get it, get it, the ball rolling and actually connect with the Purdue Foundry, see what, see where that takes us. Uh, I had a friend who was developing a, another different business and I was like, okay, that's cool. That's something I'm interested in doing. So we just said, okay, let's try it. Uh, so we started with uh, we started with something vastly different with uh, an idea about drones, and we started talking to people in that industry. And the, the idea that we had was about like drone health and that stuff. But and the people that we started talking to, they were saying, yeah, that's an interesting topic, but it's done, or that people won't use it. It's it's not really that needed. So mm -hmm. we went back to the drawing board and started thinking, okay, well, drone health, okay, robot health, uh, what's, what else is robotic? Oh, um, manufacturing facilities, they're pretty much all automated these days. So that's how we landed on uh, Industry 4.0 and how to get, uh, you know, sort of in that manufacturing health type scenario. Sure. Now it makes a lot of sense. I love. So was it a pretty quick pivot then, all things considered? Uh, no, actually. We had gone through the Purdue Foundry as this program called Firestarter. Uh, it's sort of like an incubator program. Okay. Uh, we went through that incubator program, and you know we got all the way through with the drone idea. And you know on the last day when we were doing our final pitches and everything, uh, we had uh, had shifted after like shifted, <laughs> and we had everybody had these polished pitches, and you know we go in there with this uh, presentation about something that we kind of just researched like two nights before yeah. and it's uh you know a very not very well fleshed out for someone who had just participated in an incubator program but you know we kept going and kept hitting it hard and you know we uh kept building from there i mean that's how startups go right sometimes you know the timing might not always perfectly align when you're doing your pitch competition but hey you got to make the change when you do it who would you say is your ideal target market right now or customers you know just through your initial rollout of this you're seeing hey this is maybe going to be a sweet spot for scout sure so what we're what we're really looking at is small to medium enterprises mm -hmm. so it could be uh manufacturers but really what we're looking at is like small to mid-sized businesses that do that collect some sort of data as we, uh, we said before manufacturers are a great source of data they generate metric tons of data so th even the smaller manufacturers they generate metric tons of data they have staffing they have inventory they have all these sorts of uh, data metrics that they need tracked in addition to that we also have been uh, talking to like uh, shipping logistic companies we've been talking to dental offices i mean lots of people have uh, this information disconnect problem so yeah. it, to say that our sweet spot would be someone who who doesn't uh, who generates enough data that they are having a disconnect problem Got it. And it sounds like you're probably still developing who ends up being like a target spot. Like you, like uh, I could see this becoming a big thing for dental offices, right? Eventually you double down on that. You start a podcast for dentists, all these things to target that type <laughs> sure, of market. Sure. So one final question is, you know, what was it like securing like your first partner, your first, the, the first group of people that are trying out scout autonomy? So the, uh, one of our mentors came to us very uh, when we uh, found, found our first partner 
and he said, how long did it take you to get this for partner? How much did it cost you to get this? And we kind of sat there scratching our head like, okay, how much? I mean, we're a new startup. How, how, how do we put a dollar point on this? And he said, okay, okay, let me rephrase the question. How, many, how much time did it take? And we went back and looked at, you know, okay, from start to the partnership, how long did it take from when we started looking for the new partnerships? And it, it took uh, cook like maybe over uh, five months to uh, yeah. get to retain the, to retain the first partner. Uh, we, just, uh, we just started a new partnership as well. Uh, I think I said it before. Uh, and that as well took uh, from... Uh, getting the initial contact, it took uh, like another three, four months to get that all set up and ready to go. So, yeah, it takes... That's a, an improvement, though. Yeah. Five months, three to four months. Sooner it'll be two and one. It's yeah. part of the journey. Yeah. Absolutely. Just the fact that seeing people suffer from the thing that we're trying to solve, mm -hmm. that is just the best feeling out there like yeah. you just go and say like you know what i'm not doing this for nothing it's it, it right. all the hours that we're putting in all the effort those five months to whatever it is just serving a greater good yeah. and you're it, not actually happy they're suffering you're just happy that there's a problem that needs solving. yes yes <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that i can fix their problem exactly. let's put it that exactly. way yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just, just definitely um, um a great feeling on that front and we're looking to have more of those in yeah. the upcoming weeks months whatever maybe you know, I should probably be less surprised by this, but all three of the startups we spoke with grew out of universities. I'm excited to see how things continue to evolve for Scout Autonomy. I'm also excited to see a young company like theirs tackling the, quote, connecting and collecting disparate data issue. They're young, they're ambitious, and they've told me they're doing this more economically than most other folks out there. Plus, I love that 11th hour pivot story of theirs. If you want to connect with these guys or any of these startups, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash onramp2022. Honestly, like if you're a big company and you want to get in on the front end with one of these young companies, you should 100% do that. Now that we've spoken to a nice sampling of startups, we're switching to focus to companies and VCs that are supporting startups. Next up is Tim Chang, who's an investment director at Xerox Ventures. Logistically, we also moved the backdrop of this interview from the atrium to the broadcast section of the Gainbridge Fieldhouse. So, while the important part of this interview is on Xerox Ventures, how they invest, and the types of areas they're looking to invest in these days, we got to cover some basketball first. Tim, I got to say, this is the first time I've ever done a recording like in an arena, like a proper sportscaster. Like, yeah. this really I, feels like we I should be talking. Actually, <laughs> no, no, I feel like it as well with the proper headset. Yeah, we should uh, be. It's, a, it's my first time, too. Yeah, actually. Yeah, we should actually, be commenting yeah. on how the last play went. Exactly. I think the Pacers are probably winning, given that we're here in Indianapolis right now. But uh, in all seriousness, I'm excited to talk to you about Xerox Ventures and, and what you look for at an event like this. But first, we got to start it off manufacturing happy hour style. If we were having a drink or if you're having a drink with someone, how do you describe what Xerox Ventures does? Yeah, well, Xerox Ventures, we are the venture arm of Xerox Holdings, $250 million fund to be deployed over the next five years, stage agnostic. I think our sweet spot is probably early stage, mm -hmm. uh, I would say, seed stage, series A. We do have a, a strategy to do series B, series C. Uh, those will probably be a little more opportunistic um, but early stage uh, follow-on mainly looking not so much to lead at this moment but to truly be value add uh, we call ourselves strategic but in the sense that if we can add strategic value and significant strategic value 
to a startup, then it's strategic. We'll figure out everything else out later, but we are, to that end, uh, returns-driven, a returns-driven mm-hmm. fund focused on several different areas. I would say three main areas of focus. The first one we would call connected work. Think about Industry 4.0 themes, advanced manufacturing, mm-hmm. IoT, robotics automation, business business automation, you know, software and hardware, both. The second category, would, we, would, we call it uh, enable, empowered businesses. Uh, okay. So those are software enablements, think uh, cybersecurity and fintech. Um, those are more closely related to our IT services business and fintech business. And then the third category is uh, green enterprises. We do think okay. that the future of good business is also sustainable and responsible. So we'll be backing companies that are empowering businesses to do so. So a good range. I have to ask, what what do you define as strategic value? Because I can think of what yeah. value is, but what would you say is strategic value? That's a really good question. You know, I think it ranges. It depends on the company, right? Mm-hmm. It depends on what the company needs from a company like Xerox. And I remind people that you know Xerox is more than just printers and copiers. Xerox has Xerox does a ton of stuff that people don't really the people don't are just aren't aware of. And Such I'm, as because I don't th- I, you know when I think of Xerox, I think of printers and copiers. So yeah. if you can go into just like the quick hit list of other things, that well, would be just super really helpful. quickly, IT services, okay. financial equipment, uh, financing, um, you know, c- cybersecurity solutions for customers, large and small, um, whether that be the federal government or an SMB mm-hmm. in the middle of Indiana. Um, you, you also then layer on park research and XRCC, our materials research group in Canada. You know, we have a lot of deep tech capability and scientific, uh, advancement capabilities, you know, whether that be on electrochemistry or AI, ML, you know, capabilities, modeling, simulation, modeling, physics, modeling. Um, those are all things that we have. So if it's a company that's working on a deep tech solution Mm -hmm. for the energy transition, we may have the right know-how and scale-up capability to help you bring those solutions to scale and to market in time. Okay. Maybe you're a software company that's looking for, for a go-to-market, right? We have 20 to 90% of the Fortune 500 okay. and 220,000 yeah. SMBs in our customer base. We want to open up those, those channels to, to our companies that we invest in. So when we say we want to be value-add, we do a lot of work internally to, to grease those skids. So we say we want to bring this value to, to the table. We want to bring it to bear. Uh, we, we like to think that we've done a lot to do that, and so far we've, we've, we've been um, true to our, to our promise. So you, early, before that, you covered sustainability, the three areas that you focus in. When you come to an event like OnRamp, and there are a lot of very early-stage companies when you're here, what are you looking for um, to get out of an event like this? Yeah. You know, I think oftentimes we come to these events and it's kind of a big mixed bag, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean that in a really good way, right? And oftentimes, sure. you know, we come in and we have these, we have a concept of what we're looking for in a particular segment. And then we learn something new. You know, mm-hmm. we encounter a startup or founder that's working on something that's just completely orthogonal to some of the theses that we've been working on internally. And we really benefit from that. You know, we may not in, end up investing in that company, but we our, our minds are open or broadened, and maybe we do shift our direction, or maybe we do tweak our th- investment theses um, in, in a little bit. But you know, what what's really valuable is the happenstance conversations that we have, mm-hmm. um, whether they be so, pseudo arranged one on one through some sort of you know conference app, or just in the hallway, right? Sure. And I really love that because you know, you know, ventures, innovation. That's it's it's a it's a relatively low hit rate to find something that actually, you know, sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need plenty, you need enough of those, those encounters to, to, to end up with something that does kind of end up succeeding. So, so I, I do enjoy that um, coming in here. Uh, you know, we may have a couple things where 
were very you know we got to a point where like you know for 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 this particular segment of manufacturing mm-hmm. we would be looking for you know an animal shape like this right yeah um but oftentimes that may be tweaked or maybe we be we're introduced to a completely a completely new idea that we want to pursue well hey tim i appreciate you jumping on the show yeah. and for everyone out there back to pacers basketball <laughs> <laughs> thanks chris thanks a bunch yeah. So connected work, empowering businesses, getting into cybersecurity, green enterprises. We talked about it earlier, but I'll say this again. This isn't the last time we're going to discuss sustainability. In fact, it's basically the theme from here until the end of the episode. Ashley Bryan of the Heritage Group Accelerator is up next. Now, the Heritage Group is actually a holding company, and this is their own in-house accelerator program for startups. Let's learn how this works as we dive into our conversation with Ashley. How do you describe what the Heritage Group Accelerator does as if you're having a drink with someone? Well, uh, the Heritage Group Accelerator operates a 13-week in-person accelerator. We bring in six to to 10 uh, hard tech companies or startups Mm -hmm. every year. And, um, and what we're really looking to do is to obviously help accelerate their growth and get them ready for funding. Um, we, we help them through giving them access to lab services. So they're coming in, testing their products, testing their prototypes. Um, and then we get them connected to our, to industry experts. Mm-hmm. So the heritage group has 30 plus operating companies in the hard tech space. Right. And so we, we will, we will leverage professionals from throughout those 30 plus operating companies, depending on, you know, which startups we have and where their, where their verticals are. Mm -hmm. And is this a unique model um, as let's say an like for an accelerator to be part of, let's say a holding company where there's the potential not only to maybe get acquired at the end of all of this, or because um, you're learning from people that are already in industry, from big hard tech companies that are in industry, correct? Is this unique, or is this something that you're seeing more often? Well, I think what we're doing is is quite unique. We're not mm-hmm. necessarily looking to acquire these startups, um, and we have a ventures arm as well mm-hmm. that that is also unique in terms of corporate ventures mm-hmm. because they are... Um, they're more driven financially, right? right? So lots of CVCs are very strategically aligned. They're looking for technology that can be acquired by the company. Mm-hmm. Um, the accelerator, while we do leverage the expertise across our operating companies, we aren't necessarily looking for acquisition opportunities or even um, investments on our own. Sure. We are literally looking for what is the emerging technologies in that hard tech space mm-hmm. that we believe we can um, provide services and um, expertise to. Mm-hmm. And so we will, lots of startups or um, accelerator programs have mentoring programs. We have, um, we have very specifically designed our mentoring program around whichever startups land in that year's cohort. So for instance, we currently have um, a startup that, that has a new coding for rebar Mm -hmm. and one of the mentors that we've recruited for our mentor program, we call Mentor Labs, um, is an expert in rebar. Okay. 
Um, and then we have other industry-related construction experts that we've we've recruited as mentors specifically for that company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really look at each member of the cohort and identify really specific industry professionals and mentors that can work with them that help them accelerate their growth. So you're aligning, uh, aligning, let's say, the right mentors with these companies. Can you give me an example of what some of these companies do? The like the, And feel free to use an example from the latest cohort as well. Sure. So we typically, we work in hard tech, so it's mm-hmm. material science, um, uh, specialty chemicals, heavy construction, so thinking vertical construction, roads, yeah. bridges and circularity, sustainability. So we've got, like I mentioned, the rebar coating startup. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, a company that's, that's working on bio-epoxies. Okay. Um, they've got, they're going into, um, you know, really all kinds of verticals, mm-hmm. right? So they've got lots of opportunities there. Uh, we've got another water treatment company mm-hmm. and um, another plastics company that's working with um, bioplastics and specifically uh, looking at at developing colors or pigments for mm-hmm. that industry. Okay, so rebar, epoxies. What are some other? What maybe? What are areas you're personally excited about as we kind of wrap the, wrap up this uh, discussion? So one of the things that's very exciting to me about all of these companies is mm-hmm. the sustainability and circularity focus. Okay. And looking at how we are we are working inside pretty traditional industries mm-hmm. for opportunities to create greater sustainability or circularity within those industries. Love it. Anything else you want to share before uh, we wrap the conversation? Um, just a plug for the Heritage Group and our Please. accelerator. Uh, if you are a hard tech startup and looking for connections into your industry or assistance with your prototyping, please reach out to us. We are uh, always looking for promising startups that we can help accelerate. I love it. Good call to action. And I will have those notes in the, uh, or how to connect with you in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for jumping on, Ashley. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Pretty cool how all that works, eh? 30 plus companies are part of the Heritage Group, so why not take advantage of the brain power and the scale available to invest in new companies? And yeah, for those hard tech startups that want to learn more and connect with Ashley, you can do that over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash onramp2022. Now that we've made it to the end, it's time to put a bow around this. You know we mentioned at the start of this episode that OnRamp is a deal-making event, and our last guest is going to show us exactly how that's the case. Sharina Perry is the founder and inventor of Utopia Plastics and the Utopia model in general. She's going to tell us a bit about that first, but she also has a perfect story that really showcases what the serendipity of an event like OnRamp can bring about. Sharina, to, to really kick this off, I'd love to ask, what is the Utopia model? Right? How do you explain it as if you're having a drink with someone like happy hour style? You know, the utopia model was really like, as we look at sustainability in more of a collective and working together, not only circularity in a circular economy, but mm-hmm. understanding that if we were o- to overcome some of these challenges that we were now facing post-COVID as far as supply chain, we'd have to figure out these 
models Mm -hmm. and then how we could work together. So through the Utopia model for us, it was to set a standard in what it looks like building a supply chain in new innovation. Mm -hmm. So we really set up companies singularly focused to satisfy the demand of our model. And that meant farming, processing, manufacturing, and distribution so that we were working together. Mm -hmm. And we've continually proved that by bringing opportunity to clients that work with us since we are B2B. So now farming is actually used in the production of everyday items, Mm -hmm. which is what we wanted to see. And that would help really be and show a sustainable model in that way. Well, one of the things I want to ask, and and I do want to have you back on the podcast to really dive into all this, because I feel like it's hard to do this in like a a small fashion. But since we're here at the on-ramp conference, right, and this is a connections conference, it's a deal-making conference, if you will, you've actually run in to startups to partner with here as well. It's not just aligning with VCs. There are other aspects. Can you share that story? Yeah, for us, you know, we got a taste of what this on-ramp looked like. Mm -hmm. We actually had an opportunity to attend the event in um, Champaign, Illinois, the Agribusiness Conference. What we saw that I had not seen was these conferences that put all the stakeholders in the room. So you have startups, you have VCs, you have other industry experts that were there from also education, learning institutions, economic development. So you have public sector, private sector, all in the same room. That's one thing that we're missing as we look at moving forward with innovation. And I feel like Generator and through the OnRap conference gets it right and is more industry focused. Yeah. And to give an example of how even for us, we look at our utopia model working. We had an individual who was a startup. He was actually one of the presenters last night pitched um, his electric bike and they use a carbon fiber. And he was looking for a sustainable material used in 3D printing. Mm. Well, he had not found one, a 3D printer that had any type of materials that they were able to make a filament. Mm. So then another individual approached me after my presentation today, interested in using our material to turn on his extruder to make 3D filament. So you got two examples then. You got an e-bike and an extruder 3D filament example. Right. So (laughs) for us, we stay in our lane. We stay in the lane of... Um, producing resins. Mm -hmm. But what we did was connect them to each other. So now we will ship the manufacturer to make the filament and the individual who makes the bike is going to send him the specs of what they need for the filament. So now you have basically manufacturing coming together and working together. Tomorrow, we're actually, before we leave, we're going to visit one of those facilities Mm. to see what they have in play. So it can happen that instantly. What I like about OnRamp 
in what they do is this setting of we often come together. Networking can be frustrating because it doesn't seem like the right people are always there and you're just pitching and throwing something out there. In these conferences, it allows you to network with more people that are in your industry or likely in a lane that makes sense. And I feel like Generator really gets it right in doing that. Yeah, I love the industry focus. I love bringing together the entire ecosystem, not just one player, not just the suppliers. Um, And it's cool that you have a story that illustrates why that is so important to wrap up this compilation of interviews we've been doing. So, Shereen, I just wanted to say thank you so much for jumping on the show. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to spending some more time with you. Yes, I look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. You know, I do hope that we get Sharina back on the show soon because there's still a lot to discuss there, especially since this episode highlighted just how much sustainability is on the minds of investors and startups alike. You know, at the end of these compilation episodes, I try to share some of my thoughts to hopefully inspire you to reflect on some of your own takeaways as well. You know, when I was there sitting in the back during the keynotes, I was thinking about Dave Roberts' comments about learning from other places and ecosystems. I hope that's what you take away from these episodes, since obviously everyone listening to this isn't from Indiana. In fact, it's more likely that you're probably not from there. But at the end of the day, that's the goal of the show, to learn from other leaders across the manufacturing industry. Personally, I found it pretty cool learning about all the different incubator programs at the universities, right? The Purdue Foundry Firestarter Incubator, Cornell Helping Get Mentor off the ground. I mean, literally all three of the startups we talked to had a university connection. So I hope we continue to see more of that. Then finally, sustainability. I mean, we talk about it a lot, right? We throw the word around a lot, but I thought it was great that Xerox was able to provide some tangible reasons as to why they're actually looking at green enterprises. Anyway, as we wrap up, first and foremost, I want to thank Generator for hosting this event and sponsoring this podcast. I also want to thank all the other groups that made OnRamp 2022 possible, including the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. You know, we rattled off some manufacturing facts about Indiana during the podcast, but I'm going to leave a few more of them with you as uh, as you hit the road when this episode ends. So this first one, it's the second best state for tax incentives, and it's the 16th, ranked 16th in startup growth. But here are a couple that I found interesting. 50% of orthopedics goods are manufactured in Indiana. And then my personal favorite, and this is the this is the one we'll end on, 80%, over 80% of RVs are manufactured in Indiana. So I do need to fact check some of those. Those were the facts that I got before this episode started. But if you want to keep the conversation going, tag me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, my handle is MFG Happy Hour. I'd love to keep the chatter around manufacturing and manufacturing in Indiana going. But there's plenty more to explore in manufacturing. This won't be the last time we dive into a state's manufacturing ecosystem. Again, thank you, Indiana. Thank you, Generator. And if you want to access any of the information, connect with any of the folks, or visit any of the breweries we mentioned in this episode, You can do that at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash onramp2022. And with that, that's a wrap. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour.
powered by the Industrial Network.